Welcome to the first edition of The Sacred Islands. This is a podcast where we cover Hawaii from the beginnings to how they are today and their fight for land and justice. In today's episode, we will cover the origins of civilization in Hawaii. Let me take you back to a time around 1000 to 1200 AD. This is when the first Polynesians settled on the Hawaiian Islands. This will mark the foundation period for the Hawaiian civilization. From this time, multiple waves of migration from what is known as the Polynesian Triangle caused a spike in population in Hawaii at that time. With the population increasing throughout time, a social system was established. This system was known as the Kapu system. This system spread the belief that someone's bloodline connected them directly to God, introducing the idea that one can have a spiritual power over another, aka mana. Mana would become such a dominant belief that soon each island was ruled by multiple chiefs fighting for territory and increase in mana. This will lead to close to 100 years of war from control over the multiple islands and eventually the whole Hawaiian archipelago. Mau, with one of the largest populations at the time, it became one of the most powerful islands out of them all. For nearly 200 years, Mau formed alliances, usually through marriage, with other islands. And by the mid-1700s, Mau's king would bring them into the next big war, the Kamehameha's War. He does this by taking control of all the islands except one, the Big Island. And eventually, the two kings of the islands would go on to war. By the end of the war, 40 years would pass by, and the new king of the Big Island would reign victorious. This king was named Kamehameha I, the same king this war was named after. With the help of aid of the European military technology and weapons, Kamehameha was able to win the war and establish a royal monarchy that would rule over the kingdom for over a hundred years. He also outlawed human sacrifice, which was used for the increase in sacred power, or mana. Kamehameha is acclaimed as the strongest Hawaiian ruler because during a time of European discovery and exploration, he was able to maintain his kingdom's independence, truly earning the nickname of Kamehameha the Great. But unfortunately, great things cannot last forever. And things in Hawaii start to change. But that is not my story to tell. So tune in for the next episode of The Sacred Islands. The unification of the islands set Hawaii on a path to interaction with nations on the global stage, and that would all begin with Kamehameha I. Kamehameha I issued some incredibly important reforms during his reign. He established chiefs on the islands to manage 
and collect taxes on behalf of him. These regional lords essentially ruled over their islands during this period. Common law was also established in the model of European governments, while a lot of the initial phases of government were established based on the British system of government. They would open diplomatic overtures with the British and French as well. With the Anglo-French Treaty of 1843, those two nations promised to ensure and guarantee Hawaiian independence in the face of European colonialism. The Kapu system decided what was sacred and what was forbidden on the island. This system, alongside Protestantism brought by British missionaries, set the initial religious doctrine on the island. This would come at the cost of Catholics especially, and France would try to secure these rights through conquest, although they were ultimately rebuffed. 1843 would see the biggest diplomatic affair occur on the island, with Admiral George Paulet invading the island on behalf of the British government. This action was not sanctioned by it, but he attempted to make Hawaii a British protectorate nevertheless. The U.S. would denounce this action and even threaten to go to war with the British. In response, the British sent admirals to the island to retake it for the Hawaiian government, which would end the Palais government on the 31st of July of the same year. During this time, however, white settlers started to enter governmental institutions, most importantly, the Council of Ministers to the King. This council advised the king through his affairs of state and essentially were his closest regulators and advisors. This council of ministers were made up primarily of American businessmen, labor leaders, and other important figures from Scotland, the United States, Great Britain, and France. The Committee of Safety would be set up soon afterward, and under this, paramilitary forces would start to arise on the island. The Committee of Safety believed that the native Hawaiian government was unfit to rule and thus vied to gain American annexation of the islands, and that became their major effort. The Bayonet Constitution on July 6th, 1887 was one of their main victories. It forced King David Kalakoa to limit his power and gave more power to the Committee of Safety. This constitution also limited voting rights of Native Hawaiians and only gave voting rights to those that held land, which was almost always white settlers that were on the island. On January the 17th, 1893, a coup d'etat would occur by these same paramilitary forces. It failed ultimately as Native Hawaiians petitioned the U.S. government to deny the annexation, and after gaining 38,000 signatures, the petition was ultimately accepted. This would prevent annexation for a couple of years. The Spanish-American War, however, would reshape the American relationship with Hawaii. Pearl Harbor was deemed an incredibly important port for American efforts in the Pacific. This would 
ultimately end up changing the American psyche in relation with annexing Hawaii. When before it was an apathetic view at best, now Americans believed that the only recourse for Hawaii would be annexation by the United States. John L. Stevens would be pivotal in ensuring the annexation of the island. He would work with businessmen on the island and representatives from the United States to set up an administrative government modeled after the United States in order to force the United States into taking action. While the Garfield administration would also end up denying annexation, under McKinley and during the Spanish-American War, the Newlands Resolution was drafted. This resolution was an joint resolution of Congress and would end up ultimately annexing the island afterward. Queen Liliuokalani would be the last queen on the island, and she would petition to not only the United States itself, but the Supreme Court to gain back her lands. This effort ultimately failed, and Hawaii was annexed. The islands were ultimately lost, without a treaty and without agreement from the Hawaiian crown. The culture of the people on the island were changed in favor of a more white and western view, and their lands were taken by a simple motion of Congress. But the fight had just begun. Hello everyone, this is your host Naomi. Welcome back. Today I'll be talking about the annexation of Hawaii. I know some of you may be wondering, what is an annexation? Well, it's the act of when government officials annex or seize an area or region and they claim it as sovereignty. And this is exactly what happened in 1898 when former President William McKinley signed an agreement to annex Hawaii. I read a lot of excerpts about the annexation, but one that stood out to me was Williamson Chang, a law professor at the University of Hawaii. He titled his excerpt, Darkness Over Hawaii. He felt the world is ignorant about Hawaii. Well, jumping back to 1897, the United States failed to ratify a treaty that would have acquired Hawaii. This would then lead to the United States acquiring a joint resolution of Congress to annex Hawaii. Chang continues by writing how many of these claims against Hawaii were false and misleading. Well, no one ever talks about how Hawaii, Native Hawaiians signed, started a petition and got over 21,000 signatures of people who were against the Treaty of Hawaii becoming annexed to the United States. I know for a fact that Native Hawaiians were frustrated. What will be the next step for Hawaiians? Fight for their kingdom? Well, Either way, Hawaiians must learn the truth about the annexation. And Hawaiian history is beginning to disappear. The only history we ever hear about is Pearl Harbor. If you don't know what Harbor... After the attack on Pearl Harbor, the United States declared martial law in Hawaii and turned the island Koholawa into a military bombing range. Believe it or not, many Native Hawaiians do not even bother to educate themselves on what happened on their islands. 
many Hawaiians today don't even recognize that many Americans, particularly the senators, were against the annexation. They stood by the Hawaiian people. After the end of World War II in 1945, Hawaiian territory officials thought that the island should return back to civilian jurisdiction. The island, the island is now protected for the reestablishment of plant life. Since the island was attacked and many bombs were placed on the island, now the island has to be protected in order to, for it to regain its vegetation. I know today some Native Hawaiians distrust the United States due to the past turmoil that has happened in Hawaii with their lands. But I do agree that Hawaiian shouldn't be just a place that you visit or a vacational site. It should be a place where you can learn about the history, learn about what has happened on the islands, learn who the Native Hawaiians were and where they came from. Because nowadays you don't see too many Hawaiian memorials. Only memorials that is present now is outside of Hawaii, which is the Pearl Harbor Memorial in Arizona. It is a virtual reality memorial where people get to walk the deck before the attack of the ships, you know, before the attack to see what it was like. It's almost like people care more about the ships than the actual island itself. And it's crazy because people don't really take the time to want to educate themselves. Even Americans don't want to take the time to educate themselves on Hawaiian lands and about the people that used to live there. Well, now Hawaiians would have to later face how to comfortably feel American now that statehood will be approaching, which we'll be hearing in the next episode. Thank you guys for tuning in. Coming from the previous episode, which discusses the annexation of Hawaii and turning into a territory unknowingly, my name is Kayla and I hope you are ready to learn more about the sacred islands. Pearl Harbor ruined Ford Island's land in 1941. It began in 1945 when World War II ended that statehood became a possibility for Alaska and Hawaii. In 1950, a bill was introduced to Congress for Alaska and Hawaii to become states. President Dwight D. Eisenhower was in favor of such transition. Now, this does have a happy ending with Hawaii's statehood being admitted on August 21, 1959, but let me give some background prior to this event. The president, Harry S. Truman, wrote and sent a letter to the senator on May 5, 1950. This letter was to show support for Alaska and Hawaii becoming states rather than remaining territories. Throughout this letter, he communicates his perspective of the potential he sees if such a transition was made. He states the benefits of their developments and specifies how other states were granted statehood during their premature stages of developing, essentially asking indirectly, since there were states given an opportunity to prove themselves, why can't Alaska and Hawaii be given the same chance? He makes it clear how much he believes in those territories and why the senators should as well, because they'll also benefit the union as a whole. He also brings up the opposing argument in which Alaska and Hawaii would instantly have representation in the Senate of U.S. not being aligned to their population if they were a state, mentioning how the U.S. has a history of being prideful in their letters and promises to foreign nations, but hardly fulfilling them. He encourages Senator O'Mahony to give America the chance to keep their promise and stand on their principles within self-government by admitting Alaska and Hawaii's statehood. And I quote from Harry S. Truman, 
There is no justification for denying statehood to Alaska and Hawaii on the basis of an issue which was resolved by the Constitutional Convention in 1787. A few months later in the year, on November 27, 1950, he wrote a letter to the vice president in hopes that the Senate will approve the bill during the session. Hawaii had a bill approved by the House of Representatives in March of 1950. In addition, the Senate Committee on Interior and Insular Affairs reported to be in favor of such bills on June 29, 1950. The final step must be cleared by the Senate. Truman is in support of the bills because of where Hawaii is located. He reminds the Senate how valuable Hawaii is since they hold much power in our national security. Pointing this out only embraces his argument because Hawaii's statehood will strengthen our national defense. Truman introduces how statehood for Hawaii can be the moment for the United States to build better relationships with populations in the Pacific area. In terms of justice, Truman states it is fair for Hawaii to be granted statehood, especially since it is an incorporated territory. Most of Hawaii's population are in favor of adopting a state constitution from the votes revealed on November 7th. And I quote, it would show, particularly in the case of Hawaii, that this government judges people by their deeds and not by their racial or national origins. It would give additional convincing proof to the people of the Far East that this country is still truly dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. On April 3, 1948, communist supporters attacked the police to rebel against South Korea's new government, lasting until the end of the Korean War in 1953. It was proven 50 years later that government forces were accountable for 70% of villages on Jeju Island being burned down. Jeju Island was more commonly known as the Hawaii of Korea. In addition to such tragedy, 30,000 people were killed, which is 10% of the island's population at the time. An 81-year-old survivor, Hong Chan Ho, made this statement. Anyone could lose their life. Whether or not it was a baby, disabled, pregnant, or elderly, there was no exception that killed anyone that came into sight. There is now a business in Jeju called Dark Tours to give visitors and even locals the chance to learn about the island's unfortunate history. The tour group shows the location of executions and grounds of buried bodies. The citizens group who came up with Dark Tours have a goal of bringing light to how the South Korean government played a significant role in the killings of 30,000 people. There is controversy of if Dark Tours have a hidden agenda. However, it has been proven that the South Korean government restricted telling certain information about Jeju's true past. People even shared stories of how they were imprisoned for writing about the killings and the children of people who shared this event were rejected jobs. A representative for Jeju Dark Tours, Bak Gae-yoon, says, We must deliver the message that we will no longer keep silent against the state violence and that we won't let this happen again. Ever since Hawaii received statehood in 1959, political movements and legal rights have made much progress. The political movement started in 1970 in the Kamala Valley when they confronted the use of the land. In January 1974, Congress passed Title VIII, which is the Native Americans Programs Act, which recognizes Hawaiians as Native Americans. They claim the purpose of this act is, and I quote, to promote the goal of economic and social self-sufficiency for American Indians, Hawaiian Natives, and Alaskan Natives. Ever since 1975, the budget of the Office of Native Americans Programs has been expanded to include Hawaiians as well. 
1976, Protect Kahol Wale challenged the federal government and the United States Navy over the use of the island, considering it has been used as a bombing target since 1941. To prepare you for the next episode, keep in mind that in November 1993, the U.S. Congress and the President, Bill Clinton, signed an act to permanently stop the use of Kahol Wale for military training. On November 23, 1993, President Clinton signed a resolution to formally apologize for the takeover of the Hawaiian nation. The United States apologizes for overthrowing the government of Queen Lali Awakalani on January 17, 1893, and even confesses to sending people to intimidate her and her government. Then, on May 4, 1994, the United States Navy turned control of Kohowale over to the state of Hawaii. Hi, my name is Katie Adesu on the Sager Islands, and in this episode, we'll cover how Hawaii's fight for land still continues. Hawaii has been occupied by the U.S. for 127 years. Native Hawaiians for centuries struggle against fighting for their land and customs against the United States government. According to the Progressive Magazine, the fight continues in 2016. The struggles now are how to preserve their land, or aina. Science has also interfered with Hawaii's land rights and traditions in the expansion of Papahana Muakea Marine National Monument. The native Hawaiians protested for the sudden urge for their own land, and when the idea was proposed, they all gathered and rallied at Honolulu, and their government stated, we should not let the federal government come in and tell us what to do with our ocean. And on to the sovereignty movement. On January 17, 1993, 100 years after the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarch, Governor John Waney banned the U.S. flag for four days from state buildings as Hawaii celebrated the centennial of American rule by mourning the loss of their nation. After their loss of 12,000 people, Hawaiians marched to the Aloha Tower crying, Ia! The call for sovereignty. The Centennial in 1993 brought so many Hawaiian sovereignty groups together to define go goals and work for the reclamation of native lands. Kuahali, a 45-mile square island, was used for bombing. The U.S. military used it for target practice from 1941 to 1990. By 1990, President Bush put a halt to all bombings. Kuahali was signed over to the state's Kuahali Island Reserve Commissions, known as Kirk. The law established Kuahali's surrounding waters up to three miles offshore as an island reserve from 1994 to 2004. The Navy spent $460 million to clean up the unexploded bombs and shells. The island was turned over to Native Hawaiians for non-commercial use in 2003 for Veterans Day. The Kuahali Reserve Commission also known as Kirk, is held to be a trust for a future Native Hawaiian sovereignty entity. 
Inadequate funding and administrative problem resulted in only 20.5% of the land being homesteaded by Native Hawaiians. Homestead means a house, especially a farmhouse, and outbuildings. This has held a long waiting list of approximately 19,000 Native Hawaiians in 2000 who applied but did not receive land for which they are eligible for. The use of land by the state and the U.S. military for non-homesteading purposes contributed to the problem in 1995. The U.S. Congress enacted the Hawaiian Home Land Recovery Act, also known as HLRA, and in 1998, a memorandum of agreement was signed with the state of Hawaii that provided the return of these lands to the Home Land Trust. In 1995, the state of Hawaii acknowledged other claims for use and loss of homelands by agreeing to pay $600 million increments over the next 20 years and to transfer back 16000 518 acres back to the Homeland Trust. President Eisenhower congratulated new congressional representatives of Hawaii, adding it to the U.S., making it the 50th state in 1959. In 1993, the U.S. formally apologized for their involvement in the illegal overthrow of Hawaii's kingdom. In 1893, armed U.S. naval forces helped American sugar plantation owners overthrow Hawaii's queen. The provisional government that was set up after ceding Hawaiian sovereignty to the U.S. embarked on a campaign to squash Native culture. The U.S. intended to make life hard for Hawaiians in a way that would cause their own destruction. And now we're moving on to how Hawaiians are pushing through the sovereignty movement today. The Native sovereignty movement and why Mananalo is a stronghold of the sovereignty movement in Hawaii. A village in the hills called the Nations of Hawaii with a population of roughly 80. The village is called the Refuge of Wai Manalo. Hawaii gave over 45 acres of land in the 90s after occupying a beach. Bumpy Kanahali was a popular group leader and the head of a refuge of Wai Manalo. Bumpy and 300 others occupy Makuku Beach. They set up tents and blocked the area for 15 months, roughly one year and three months. Hawaii's governor asked Bumpy to end the occupation in exchange for a 55-year lease on the land. When the sovereign Hawaii nation was established, the land became with a renewed fight for independence, came with a cultural shift. Hawaiian became reclaiming traditions that were formerly suppressed. That came with teaching the youth the language, dance, cultural tattoos, using ancient techniques, and making traditional foods. Native Hawaiians stressed that Hawaii continues to be occupied illegally. The crime that has been committed still being that is part of our struggle to maintain life, but morally, one of those rights are rooted in a country. Hawaii, known as the U.S. Territory since 1899, became the 50th state in August 1959. Many Native Hawaiians have moved and now live outside Hawaii because of the housing and many other factors for basic living necessities. The land where all their ancestors have lived for generations down the years, now they quote unquote need land to live upon. That's why the fight continues for Hawaii.